Okay, those bells mean it's time to start. Um, we're talking about atomic spectra last time, the quantum model of the atom, how it gives rise to uh, discrete energy levels. Um, we talked a little bit about the numerical value of those energy levels and how we could derive them from the Bohr model. We will, or we, we started to last time, um, look beyond the, Mo the Bohr model. and expand our model of the hydrogen atom, so the simplest atom we can think of, um, and introduce more quantum numbers that uh, will be useful in differentiating the, uh, the states of, of an electron or an excited atom. Okay, so we're dealing with a hydrogen atom where we have a very simple potential, just the electrostatic potential of a point charge. So our point charge we're assuming is uh, a proton our electron is trapped in this potential, and I guess if this is a potential, it shouldn't have a square there. It should just be an E. The potential energy would be E squared. Um, and we mentioned that when we have a two-mass system, that rather than treat uh, the electron as orbiting around the proton, really to be more uh, careful, we need to consider both the electron and the proton orbiting around a center of mass, and that uh, we can do by using the reduced mass, mu, uh, in place of the electron mass in any equation that we have that has the electron mass in it. So we just make that substitution. And with that potential, and using this reduced mass, we can write the wave function as a separable function, so a function in radius, a function in angle, and a function in azimuthal angle, and then some time dependence. And since if we separate these functions, if we can do that, then we can find solutions to the Schrodinger equation for the radial part of the wave function the angular part of the wave function and the azimuthal part of the wave function, and require that all three of those be solutions simultaneously. And what we find is that in order to have um, certain solutions, we need to have various boundary conditions that are met, and that will restrict some of the parameters in the solutions to be discrete values. That means we'll have qu new quantum numbers. So for example, the azimuthal part of the wave function uh, is going to have some uh, phase shift as the azimuthal angle varies. And in order for that phase to repeat, okay, so here is the Schrodinger equation. And here is our electrostatic potential. And let's try a solution that is purely radial and has an exponential decay. Okay, so let's just try that, plug it into uh, our value for psi, and see what comes out. So 
we're going to use this form because we expect that far from the nucleus, the probability of finding the electron should go to zero if it's bound. Um, so we'll try an exponential decay. Okay, so the results are, are worked out on the board. I'll work, work out the steps here. So I'll start with the Schrodinger equation. And if I'm working in spherical coordinates, I can write this Laplacian. as 1 over r squared d by dr times r squared d by dr. That's the radial part of the Laplacian. And since I have a solution that only has radial dependence, I wouldn't need to consider the, uh, the azimuthal or the angular dependence in the, in the Laplacian. Okay, so if I operate on e to the minus alpha r, I'll first take the derivative, and when I do that, I get a minus alpha coming out. That alpha is a constant, so I will bring that out to the very front. Now when I take the derivative, I have, have to use the chain rule, or I'm sorry, the product rule. So I'm going to take the derivative of the first plus the second, or times the second plus uh, the first times the derivative of the second. And now I can multiply through and simplify. Um, alpha squared e to the minus alpha r for the first term. And the second term is going to have a 1 over r alpha e to the minus alpha r. Did I? Okay, so that's just the Laplacian of my trial solution. That's just this part. So now if I plug this in there, I can work out what I get. I'm going to have an h bar squared over 2m factor. Now I'll evaluate my potential. 
Right here? Okay, so I'm going to rearrange this into terms that don't have an 1 over r in terms of do. I think this is the same thing I have in the slides. It's in a different form. But I think it's equivalent. OK, so in order for this to equal 0, in order for my trial solution to be a valid solution, I need to have this equal 0. The only way that's going to happen is if this term equals 0 independently from that term, right? in order for this to be a solution at all values of r. OK, so that gives me two constraints. One is that e equals uh, minus h bar squared over 2m alpha squared. And the other, I can get from over here, I'll solve it in terms of alpha. Alpha is e squared over 4 pi epsilon naught times m over h bar squared. And I'm going to go ahead and substitute in for m mu.
So this is equivalent to what's written up there. I was using H's over here, and I was using H bars over here. So they look a little different because of that, but they're, uh, they're the same. I have a constraint on alpha and a value for the total energy. So the constraint on alpha, if we flip back a couple slides to yesterday's lecture where we derived the, uh, yesterday's last time's lecture where we derived the Bohr radius, alpha, the numerical value it works out to, or the relationship of these constants, is just 1 over the Bohr radius. So that lets me write my trial solution as e to the minus r over ah. And if I were to plot that, it's an exponential decay. And Starting at 1, it's decayed to uh, 1 over e at a distance of 1 Bohr radius. Okay, so the Bohr radius was the distance we expected to find an electron in the ground state. And here it's a characteristic distance of how far the uh, probability distribution is, is falling off. The energy is written in terms of these constants. And again, if we flip back a couple slides, we can find these constants uh, already defined as the Rydberg constant. So the energy associated with the solution, with the ground state, is equal to the Rydberg constant, which was our energy of our binding energy, the energy of the ground state relative to the free particle. Okay, so that's a solution that has uh, a radial wave function. And then we could also try some various uh, angular and azimuthal wave functions. So the easiest ones are going to be, uh, let's try both of these being a constant. And that will give us our ground state. Um, okay, so each of these wave functions has certain quantum numbers associated with it. We've already seen that n is called the principal quantum number. It's related to the radius of the electron cloud. And we saw that uh, varying n varied the radius at which you would uh, find that electron. L we call the azimuthal quantum number. It's related to the angular momentum and can have values anywhere from 0 to n minus 1. And for an electron in the L equals 0 state, we call that the s orbital. No angular momentum. The s orbital is a uh, 
spherically symmetric orbital. L equals 1, we call the p orbital. L equals 2 is the d orbital. L equals 3 is the f. So sometimes you'll see uh, letters associated with those, those quantum numbers. So we're not going to go through the derivation of all the quantum numbers or the derivation of the uh, energy and angular momentum as it relates to the quantum numbers. I'm only going to state the results. Um, you may have gone through this in 263. Have you gone through this in 263? At the quantum mechanics uh, class. So the orbital angular momentum is related to this quantum number L. It's measured in units of h-bar, and it has a magnitude of L times L plus 1 h-bar. Okay, so the orbital angular momentum of a hydrogen atom in the ground state. In the ground state, n is equal to 1. Therefore, what does L have to equal? 0. So L is 0. It has to be smaller, an integer smaller than n. And that means orbital angular momentum is 0 times 1 h-bar, or 0. Um, so in the second state, in the, in the first excited state, or the n equals 2 state, uh, the electron can have an azimuthal quantum number of 0 or 1. Okay, if it's 1, we call that the p orbital. And the angular momentum associated with that is 2h-bar. And in that case, it has some angular momentum. That angular momentum can have a direction. And we talk about the uh, component of the angular momentum along z. And that itself is quantized. The largest it can be would be 2h. The smallest it can be is minus 2h. And in fact, the magnetic quantum number can go up to L and be either plus or minus. And again, it has to be an integer. So that's the component of the angular momentum along Z. So ML h-bar is the uh, actual angular momentum in units of joule seconds. Okay, so we can look at our uh, solution, our exponentially decaying solution, just like I plotted up here, for the uh, n equals uh, 1 wave function. Here's this exponential decay. Um, so psi squared gives us the probability of finding the electron or the particle at a particular position. It would appear that it's maximum at zero, but what's missing from this is the fact that uh, this wave function is in spherical coordinates. So if we want to talk about finding the particle at a particular position, we have to take the probability of finding it with that radius times the size of the shell that has that radius. So the shell is 4 pi r squared times psi r squared will give us the uh, probability of finding the electron at distance r away from the, the center. So it goes to zero 
at the center and has a peak out here at one Bohr radius. And that's consistent with our Bohr model where we said the electron was located at one Bohr radius away. Okay, so that's the ground state. If we look at a system in the uh, n equals 2 or higher state, there can be um, angular momentum. There can be a value for L that's not equal to 0. If L equals 1, then we have a p orbital. And here are three different uh, visualizations, or visualizations of three different p orbitals um, with the angular momentum along x, y, or z. So what's plotted here is the value of psi squared. Um, the value of psi is continuous around here, but as the phase uh, varies through 2 pi going across uh, pi radians in the xy plane, for example, the function goes through from a maximum through 0 to a minimum. And so the maximum and minimum, when you square them, give you the maximum probability, and the 0 is that node. And here's, I think I showed this last time. This is what an oscillation looks like between a, a p orbital and an s orbital. So if you imagine an electron that's in a superposition of a p orbital and an s orbital, um, as the probability density sloshes around like this, um, we can think of the electron as radiating away energy, like a little dipole that's accelerating, or a charge that's accelerating, or a dipole that's changing. Okay, pictures of the d orbital. We're just getting um, more variation in the phase in the angular direction. And as the phase varies faster, it goes through zeros more frequently. And so we get more of these lobes. Okay, so the energy level, and that's primarily what we're able to observe through spectroscopy, is the energy level that a system is in, or the change in energy levels of a system. The energy level in hydrogen only depends on the quantum number n. And we have an expression down here for what the energy of the ground state looks like. Um, here it is for the nth excited state. So we derived this last time. It scales as 1 over n squared. But because of the fact that for n greater than 1, there can be more than one quantum number L. Okay, so said, for example, if n equals 2, if we have an atom in the second excited state, the possible values for the angular momentum L are minus 1, or I'm sorry, 0 or plus 1. Okay, so there would be two possible uh, values for L. And the z component could be minus 1, 0, or plus 1 if the angular momentum is 1. So there's actually several degenerate, or several states with the same energy. 
several states that have different quantum numbers that could all have the same energy, for example, uh, n equals 2. So let's just go through um, n, l, m sub l and work out the possible values. If n equals 1, what is L? Zero. Zero. And then M sub L? Zero. Zero. Okay. If n equals 2, what are the possible values of L? One, zero. zero or 1. If L is equal to 0, what is M sub L? Zero. zero. So if there's no angular momentum, the component of the angular momentum along Z is 0. Um, if the angular momentum has one h bar, what can be the component along z? Zero plus or minus one. So in that case, how many different degenerate states are there? How many? There are four. Yeah. So. And for n equals 3, what can the values for L be? Zero, 1, or 2. We already know that for 0 and 1, we get these four degenerate states. And for L equals 2, if you have two units of angular momentum, the z component can go from minus 2 to plus 2. And so we end up with uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 possible states that are all distinct but have the same principal quantum number and therefore the same energy. Okay, so in general, there will be n squared degenerate states. Uh, we are not taking it into account yet. Um, so, if we take it into account, it just doubles, doubles the number of states. Um, Okay, so we have a certain energy for a state. That's going to be related to the uh, frequency of oscillation of the wave function. So from the Schrodinger equation, the time dependence is an exponential oscillate, or it's an oscillation because it's in the exponential, um, with an argument that depends as et over h. So the factor in front of the time in an oscillation is a frequency. So E over h bar is the angular frequency, the frequency of oscillation of the wave function. And we saw last time then that uh, transitions between different energy levels emit photons or absorb photons 
with a frequency associated with a difference in uh, difference in frequency, difference in omega of the energy levels, or equivalently, the frequency is the difference in energy divided by h bar. Now, there are ways to break the degeneracy of an excited level. So say you have um, an excited atom where the electron's in the 2p orbital. So the 2 refers to the, qu the principal quantum number. It's 2, so it's in an excited state. And the p refers to the angular momentum is 1. What would it be called if the angular momentum were 0? 2s, yeah. So the 2p state. The 2p state has three possible three possible directions for the angular momentum, if you will. So the magnitude of the angular momentum is 1, can have components along z of plus 1, minus 1, or 0. So there's three degenerate states. They all have the same energy. Um, but those energy levels can be split if you do something to break the degeneracy. So, for example, if you apply a magnetic field, in the presence of a magnetic field, you have angular momentum with different directions. You essentially have little, think of this as spinning charges. Those are magnets. With different directions associated with them. Then our magnets can align to the field or misalign to the field. And depending on their alignment, there's a different amount of energy stored in the, in the magnetic dipole. And as a result, we get a sh splitting of the energy for the three different uh, magnetic quantum numbers. Therefore, if you are observing, for example, the emission spectroscopy, the emission spectrum from this excited state as it decayed down to the ground state, uh, while you would normally only observe a single line, in the presence of a magnetic field, that single line would split into three, right? one for each of the three initial states. If you were going from, say, a 3p to a 2p state, you'd have more than three lines, because you'd have three upper states and three lower states. So you'd have a larger combination, almost nine almost because there's some selection rules that would forbid a few of the transitions. Um, okay, so a magnetic field can break the degeneracy. Um, if, if, you're in, if the molecule, ha if you're not dealing with an atom but a molecule uh, with some dipole moment, so water, for example, an electric field can break the degeneracy. That's called the Stark effect. The magnetic field breaking the degeneracy is called the Zeeman effect. Um, mentioned a couple other ways of breaking the degeneracy in a crystal lattice the vibration of the lattice um, can spread the energy levels um, the electric field gradient produced by the electron cloud can cause an energy level splitting of the magnetic uh, I guess the electric quadrupolar moment of the nuclei um, so basically, the electron cloud can produce a field that causes the splitting of the nuclear uh, magnetic moments or electric, electric moments. 
very similar to the Zeeman effect. Um, so there's a lot of ways that what would be a single line, a single line here, can be split into very uh, closely separated lines. And if you have the resolution to resolve them, you can learn about things such as the external magnetic field or the uh, quadrupolar moment of your nucleus, um, the level of vibrations in the crystal, things like that. So you can use the, the observed spectrum to tell you something about the environment that your material is in. And it can also be an important to understand this, the way that uh, levels can be split so that when you see a spectrum with some complicated spectral structure, um, oftentimes we don't really need to know anything about the splitting. We care maybe about the absolute energy level transition. And if we understand how a single level gets split into multiple levels, we can sort of work backwards and take a band of energy or a band of lines and understand how uh, those may have all derived from the same, same energy level. Okay, so I mentioned in the last slide um, case of a water molecule which has a dipole moment. Um, that was sort of the first, first time today where we've gone from an atom to molecules. Um, same quantum mechanics applies to molecules. The derivation is a little harder. The potential wells are more complicated. There's more degrees of freedom. Uh, but the result that we have quantum numbers that describe the energy level and the, the um, angular momentum states of a molecule uh, applies just as much as it does for an atom. And so when we're dealing with a molecule, we typically use uppercase letters to denote the quantum numbers rather than lowercase. So here are some of the quantum numbers for a molecule. Capital J is the total angular momentum. So instead of lowercase l, we have capital J. Um, it includes the rotation of the molecule, which you don't have if you have an atom. The rotation is, is uh, you have a symmetric atom. There's no way to, to refer to the rotation. The rotation of the molecule, as well as the orbital angular momentum and the electronic spin. So we still have uh, electronic spin for an individual electron is lowercase s. Uh, the nuclear spin we call uppercase i. And the nuclear spin comes from adding up all the plus or minus one half spins of the nucleons. And so if you have an even number of, say, neutrons, those neutrons will align their spins so that they'll pair up. And there'll be a upspin and a downspin paired up. So if you have an even number of uh, neutrons, they combine to give you no net spin. And likewise for protons, they will combine to give you no net spin if you have an even number. If you have an odd number, then you have a net one-half spin. And when you combine the neutrons and the protons, what you find is that if you have an even number of both uh, neutrons and protons, meaning an even charge number and an even mass number, then you get no net spin. 
if you have an odd charge number and an odd neutron number, so odd protons and odd neutrons, then you expect you've got uh, two unpaired nucleons, each with a half integer spin. And therefore, you'd have an integer number of, for the nuclear spin. And then if you have an even number of one and an odd number of the other, such that the uh, yeah, such you have an odd number of nuclei, then you're going to have a half integer spin. Okay, so you can figure out a little bit about what the spin should look like just from looking at the periodic table for an element and looking at the mass number and the charge number. So this is the nuclear spin. There's a component of that along z, which we call m sub i. And there's a quantum number that's unrelated to anything we had for an atom, which is a vibrational quantum number. So if you have a bond, that bond can vibrate. So the distance between the atoms and the bond can change. Of course, that's not relevant if you just have a single atom. So there's a quantum number associated with that. Um, and we'll see an example of how that relates to the energy of the molecule in a moment. So before we do that, I want to introduce the idea of selection rules. I said a little bit ago that if we had a transition from, say, the 3p state to a 2p state, and we had the Zeeman effect present, that we might have both states splitting into three energy levels, and that we would expect to have almost nine different lines in the spectrum. But we wouldn't exactly have nine because some of the transitions are forbidden. Right, so let's consider that example. From a 3p to a 2p state, in the presence of an external magnetic field that causes Zeeman splitting. And let's start by cons looking at all the possible transitions. So from the lower energy level of the 3p state, we can go to any of the lower, or any of the energy levels of the 2p state. Likewise, from the middle energy level and from the upper energy level. Okay, so what happens when you have a decay from an upper state to a lower state? Where does the energy go? It goes into a photon, okay, or at least we're assuming it goes into a photon. There's other ways to transition. It could go into a collision with a neighbor or something like that, but for a radiative decay, it goes into photons. Photons have an intrinsic angular momentum of h-bar. Okay, so if the photon carries away one h-bar of angular momentum, what does that tell us about the angular momentum of the upper and lower states? Can they be the same? No. Okay. And in, case, in fact, um, in this case, what is the angular momentum of 
the three P state. One H bar. And what about the two P state? Same thing. All right, so there are these nine possible transitions. They're all forbidden. They're forbidden because there's no way for a single photon to carry away that energy. It doesn't mean you can't have a transition. There's a couple possible ways to have a transition. Where would the energy level for the 2s state be? The above, below, or somewhere in the middle? Paul? Below. Okay, why do you say below? Has a lower angular momentum. So the S state has an angular momentum of zero, but it has the same principal quantum number, and that's what determines the energy. Yeah. Okay, so what happens is um, so these three lines represent the 2p state and the center line is the 2p state with the angular momentum not having any component along z so we're assuming that we have a magnetic field pointing along z the higher energy one is the one where the component of the angular momentum is anti-aligned to the external field and the lower energy is the angular momentum aligned to the external field so for the 2s state, the angular momentum is zero. The component, the angular momentum along the magnetic field is zero, so it doesn't get shifted. So you can have a transition. These red lines are okay. red lines are possible. They're not from the 3p to the 2p, they're from the 3p to the 2s. Um, it can also, I think I have it on the slide, I'll just look at it on the slide. Um, okay, so likewise, you can't transition from the 2s to the 1s state directly, because both of those states have zero angular momentum. The photon has to carry away one unit of angular momentum, so that tra transition is forbidden. Um, it doesn't mean that it can't occur. If you excite somehow an atom into a 2s state, it will eventually go back to the ground state. So one possibility is it does it by collisions. It gives off its energy mechanically rather than electromagnetically. Um, and that probably takes... Or, there's a possibility that that takes much longer. And so the system can stay in the excited state for a longer period of time. Another way that it can decay is by a collision, 
which doesn't take away all the energy, but merely adds some angular momentum and converts it from a 2s state to a 2p state. Whenever you have a two energy states that have a very similar energy, it's very easy to uh, convert between them. The rate at which uh, collisions can cause coupling between the two states uh, is, is faster when the energy level difference is smaller. Okay, so we'd expect this 2s state to populate the 2p state, and the collisions can cause it to go back to the 2s state, so they can go back and forth. But the 2p state can decay radiatively to the ground state because we're going from an angular momentum of 1 to an angular momentum of 0. The photon can carry away that angular momentum, and so you can get radiation indirectly. Okay, and so this, for example, is a way that you get phosphorescence. Exciting a system into a forbidden state and causing it to decay indirectly. And another way is through a two-photon process. So if you can't um, go from the 2s state to the 1s state because the net change in angular momentum is zero and a photon has one unit of angular momentum, you can imagine uh, two photons being emitted, each with half the energy and with opposite values for the angular momentum such that they carry away all the energy and don't change the angular momentum. So this is called the two-photon process. Um, Jack? Yeah, they have to be done at the same time, um, or at least to the extent that these energy levels are infinitely well-defined, then the, uncert the Heisenberg uncertainty says the time in which this transition can occur uh, can be infinitely long. Um, so they need to occur at the same time, um, which makes this a much less probable transition. I've got a video on the next slide, so my computer's taking its time to load that. You have a question, Wade? If you go from 2s to 1s, then you both carry over zero energy in the energy in the form of uh, you know, the, the end changes in 2 1. Yeah, you can emit the energy, but since the angular momentum doesn't change, Whatever takes away that energy can't have any net angular momentum associated with it. So if it's a single photon carrying away that energy, it has to have some angular momentum because a photon has angular momentum. So the only way to do that is to either have two photons such that their angular momentum cancels or it has something else carrying away the energy like a, a, a collision that in, induces a phonon carries away the energy, but doesn't have any angular momentum associated with it.
There we go. Okay, why don't we take like a five minute break and uh, when we return, I will have the next slide up and ready to go. Okay, so let's, uh, let's go back to it. Um, and I have a, another one of these movies that shows a transition between two states. This one actually um, shows what the, uh, or visualizes what the electron cloud would look like during a particular type of experiment. It's fairly common. 
Um, so let me describe the experiment a little bit. And then it's kind of interesting to see what's going on with the electron cloud during the experiment. Um, one of the things that you often want to do is analyze a gas um, and observe its energy levels or its uh, rate of decay between energy levels to learn something about the gas. And so one way of doing that, um, ignore this beam splitter for now in this, is to take a laser whose frequency can be adjusted so that you can sweep the laser frequency to find the frequency at which this gas absorbs. So you shine it through the gas, and you could either put a detector here that looks at when the power dips down because it's being absorbed by the gas, or you could look at the light that's radiated out of the gas, the emission, as you excite the atoms and then they decay back down. And you're only going to have emission when you also have absorption pumping the gas. Why might you choose to look at the emission rather than the absorption? there'd be some emission in this direction. And so at the same time you're absorbing here, you're emitting there. So the net effect would be somewhat decreased. That's true. Any other thoughts on that? Let's look at the power absorbed and the power emitted as a function of the laser frequency. Uh, what would the plot of the power absorbed versus frequency look like? Okay, have a dip. And then the emitted? Okay, so now let's say there's only weak absorption. You could very easily saturate your detector with the DC background and not observe that small dip. Whereas when you have a zero background, you can crank up the gain on your detector and see any change from zero much more easily than you can see a change from a, a DC value. So that's just a, in principle one of the reasons why you might look at emission. Okay, so let's say you do that and maybe you're looking for um, some evidence of hyperfine splitting in the, due to the nuclear uh, quadrupolar moment. Say. So you're expecting to see very closely spaced lines. But your sample is a gas at a finite temperature. The molecules are moving around. And what you actually observe is not three closely spaced lines, but one big wide line. Why might you see that? Yeah, so the three lines you're looking for are overlapping. One reason they might overlap is molecules that move around, if they're moving towards your laser, they're the frequency of the laser that they see, what happens to it? It gets yeah, blue shifted. It gets Doppler shifted to a higher frequency. 
molecules that are moving away from the laser, see the resonant frequency Doppler shifted to a lower frequency. So what began as, say, a very narrow spectral line gets broadened. We call that Doppler broadening. Because some atoms see a higher frequency light, some atoms see a lower frequency light. So there's actually a range of frequencies for the laser at which some of the atoms will be resonant. That's just for a single line. Now you imagine three closely spaced lines. If the Doppler broadening exceeds the separation of the lines, you lose resolution, the ability to resolve them. So that's a very common problem, um, dealing with uh, resolution of, of experiments when you have Doppler broadening. And you always have Doppler broadening when you have gas at finite temperature. Okay, so you can cool the gas. Uh, that's hard and expensive. Or you can be clever, and we'll talk a lot more about this experimental technique uh, in a couple weeks when we do more about uh, more of the experimental parts of this class. But you can take a beam splitter, separate your light, and counter-propagate the light through your sample. Now if you do that, when an atom is moving in one direction, it sees one beam frequency shifted up, the other one frequency shifted down. If you arrange the frequency of the light such that instead of going directly from state 1 to state 2 by absorbing a single photon, if you require it, it absorb two photons, okay, so you choose a laser frequency that's half of the transmission, uh, transition frequency, then you require two photons to be absorbed, and a moving molecule will see one of the photons frequency Doppler shifted up and the other one Doppler shifted down. And the sum of the energy deposited from those two photons remains the same, as if it's not Doppler shifted. So that's the basic mechanism that allows you to circumvent the Doppler shift by using two photons of half the energy counter-propagating. Um, okay, so with that background, Let's watch this video. So at first, I, I, just, I got this video off the web. Um, There's a site that had a number of these uh, visualizations of electron clouds. And I was trying to find one that was an, a decay. Um, let's just watch it. Ah. OK, let's just watch it. Um, these waves coming in are meant to represent the inco incoming photons. So that's the, uh, the wave represents then the electric field due to the incoming photons. This sphere represents the electron cloud. It's being driven to a larger size by the oscillating electric field. There's a time delay. There's some arrows that, for the moment, we don't know what they mean. And then the big electron cloud collapses to a small electron cloud and looks like it's emitting some radiation. Okay, so uh, at first glance, it looks like maybe we absorb 
light went from the 1s state to the 2s state, and then we emitted light went from the 2s state to the 1s state. Uh, there's actually quite a bit more to it than that. Uh, this is actually demonstrating what happens in this experiment over here, where there's not just a single photon, but two photons being absorbed. And that's why there's light coming in from the left, light coming in from the right. They set up a standing wave. So in this, in this picture, it's a standing wave. Over here was a two-photon absorption. And because they're counterpropagating, um, in this picture, we just have a standing wave, no spatial dependence, just a time dependence, well, no change in the spatial dependence. Um, I'm going to go back again. But in another way of saying it is, because we have two photons, we can consider the case where their total angular momentum is zero. So one is plus one angular momentum, one is minus one. They combine to give a zero angular momentum, which is why we can go from a 1s state to a 2s state. Normally, you couldn't go from the 1s state to the 2s state by absorbing a photon. You go from 1s to 2p, but not from 1s to 2s. Okay, now, those lines right there, do it again. The vertical, the vectors that were drawn are meant to represent an externally applied electric field. Okay, so here I've got a capacitor sitting around my gas. Turn on a voltage. Once the thing's in the 2s state, that produces an electric field. And what that does is it pushes the electron cloud to one side. And if you start with a spherically symmetric electron cloud and you displace it to one side, uh, what you're doing that's classically what you're doing. Quantum mechanically, you're coupling between the 2s state and the 2p state. Okay, so now we've got a combination of 2p state. Uh, well, you've got a 2p state decaying to a 1s state by emitting a single photon. And that's why we can have a single photon coming out now. When it required two photons to be absorbed, uh, to conserve angular momentum, the electric field converts it to a 2p state, and that can decay to a 1s state. Okay, so that's an example of these selection rules in practice. And it's demonstrating this experiment, which we'll come back to in, in many forms in the upcoming month. Okay, um, let's consider some real molecules. So for atoms, we were looking at the hydrogen atom. It was the simplest. For molecules, there's really no simplest molecule. I guess maybe H2. But they're all going to have various complexities. So let's consider one that at least is, is relevant in everyday life, uh, carbon dioxide. So there's a lot actually, that we know about carbon dioxide, that you may know about carbon dioxide without having studied it. Um, why does carbon dioxide get a bad rap these days? Because it's, it's good if you like it hot. It's a greenhouse gas. Okay. Uh, how about, if, has anybody uh, heard of a carbon dioxide laser? Another example of where we hear about carbon dioxide. Do you know what wavelength those laser at? It's infrared. 
about 10.6 microns. It's the typical wavelength of a carbon dioxide laser. Okay, so with those two pieces of information, uh, we can look at the structure of the CO2 molecule and understand how that structure relates to the fact that it's a greenhouse gas and that it's used in a laser that emits 10.6 micron light. So carbon dioxide is a linear molecule, so its bond, its bond angle is 180 degrees. So here this red ball is my carbon atom, the purple ones are the oxygen atoms. And so if you think about all the things that, that those bonds can do, you can shake them, twist them, spin them around, but you can decompose any type of motion into uh, four different sort of normal modes. So there's rotation about the center of mass, there's stretching of the bond, both what we call the asymmetric stretching and symmetric stretching. So symmetric stretching is uh, grab the ends and pull. Asymmetric stretching is like hold the ends in place and displace the center to one side. So one bond is getting shorter, one bond is getting longer. If you combine those two, you can come up with two atoms stationary and one moving. Depending on how you combine them, you can treat motion of any of those atoms um, along the direction of the bonds. And then you can have bending. So you can displace the uh, carbon orthogonally to the bonds. And if you now just imagine these things literally as being masses and springs in between them, and think about how much energy it might take to shake these things, um, it's probably not that surprising that the energy associated with bending, or the ease of bending, is much greater. It's much easier to displace this uh, we'll call it this mass, in a direction in which the springs aren't directly pulling, than to displace these masses in the direction that the springs are pulling them back. Okay, so there's an effective spring constant that produces a restoring force that's going to pull this mass back to the equilibrium position, but it's weaker in this bending mode than it is in this stretching mode. And we can look at the energy associated with vibration. So energy of a simple harmonic oscillator is h bar omega. And the frequency of oscillation omega is square root of k over m, where k is a spring constant. In here I'm using mu, the reduced mass, um, because I have a multiple mass system. So if the energy associated with uh, a simple harmonic, is, harmonic oscillator is h bar omega, when we quantize that, we get each additional quantum of energy, which we're denoting by the quantum number v, adds one unit of h bar omega of energy. Okay, and you can go back to your last quantum mechanics class to understand that there's some, some absolute energy level associated with the ground state. That's where this one half comes from. Okay, so the value of k, that's a spring constant, and that's going to depend on the type of motion you have. So there's a different spring constant for asymmetric stretching than there is for bending, than there is for symmetric stretching. Okay, it just depends on how these different 
springs, if you will, combine to produce an effective spring. Uh, one thing to note is that the numbers that you probably printed out, if you have this in your notes, are wrong. So mostly it's this number and this number have to be interchanged. And there was an error, I think by a factor of 100, there was a typo. I think I had 1288 instead of 1388. Anyhow, uh, I posted that in the lecture, in the, uh, in the discussion forum, and you can jot down the correct values here. Um, although the numbers probably are not critical for anything other than the example we're about to do. Uh, what's that? These numbers are correct. Yeah, I corrected this. Uh, so that's vibrational energy. For rotational energy, let's see, rotational kinetic energy is one half I omega squared. Um, and here we write that in terms of the angular momentum. The angular momentum, well, you can work it out classically. Angular momentum is I omega. Kinetic energy in rotation, one half I omega squared, which we can write as uh, L squared over two. L squared over 2i. So just like kinetic energy in translation is linear momentum squared over 2m. Um, and here's the quantum analogy of that. j is the total angular momentum. j times j bar, j plus 1 times h bar squared. This is the uh, total angular momentum squared for the molecule, divided by 2i, where i is just a moment of inertia, and that will give us the energy associated with rotation, and it's quantized by this j. This j is a quantum number, it's an integer. It is, so, it depends. so in this case it's a symmetric molecule, so the center of mass is right in the center. So the uh, moment of inertia is the sum of the moment of inertia at the three particles. The carbon atom is at the center of rotation, so it has no contribution. And then these oxygen atoms are one bond length away and have a mass of whatever that of an oxygen atom is. So we have a moment of inertia for each of these that's mr squared. So we'll work that out here on the next slide. Okay. Um, just plugging in some numbers, though. If I plug in the h-bar squared over 2i, that's going to tell me how much the rotational energy changes each time j increases. Okay, and that value is 0.78 expressed in, as a wave number, inverse centimeters. We do the same thing over here for vibrational energy, and I can look up the bond strength and use the calculate the reduced mass. I get a value for h bar square root of k over mu that depending on the type of uh, vibration that I have is in the thousands of centimeters squared or per centimeter. So from 2349 to 667. So the 
smallest energy for vibration corresponds to the bending mode. We said that should be the easiest. And then the largest energy is associated with the asymmetric stretching. And all of these vibrational energies are much larger than this rotational energy. Um, and if we went back and we looked at how many uh, wave numbers, how many centimeter, inverse centimeters is associated with visible light, something like 12,000 is the red end of the spectrum. So these are all infrared energy levels. So what does that have to do with global warming? Yeah, so sunlight is primarily in the visible. Uh, these carbon, carbon dioxide is transparent to visible. It's not absorbing because the energy is not, a, not related to any of these, uh, any of these uh, vibrational or rotational modes. But then the Earth heats up, emits infrared radiation. That infrared radiation does overlap with these, these energy levels. And therefore, it excites. Uh, so basically, this absorbs that infrared radiation. Um, and then it will re-emit it, and some of that re-emission will go back towards Earth. OK, uh, last thing it's worth saying, because this is in the homework. So these values are all in the uh, mid-infrared. This is a much lower energy, so that's in the far infrared. That's a wavelength that's about a centimeter long. So that's far infrared. Um, OK, so I'll just, I don't think we'll calculate it, but I'll sort of walk through how we would calculate, for example, the uh, wavelength associated with a pure rotational transition of carbon dioxide. So one way to do that is a pure rotational translate. Here's my pure rotational. Uh, here's the amount of energy that changes when you have a rotational, uh, a change in the rotational energy. I've already calculated a number. How did I get that? And then if I have this number for the amount of energy change, what wavelength is associated with that? Okay, so I need to know a little bit more about CO2. So a couple things I can refer to is the periodic table of the elements, Wikipedia, or other, any other reference on CO2. Um, and what I want to find is this uh, moment of inertia. I want to calculate that. So moment of inertia looks like mR squared for a point mass. And I've got three point masses. So I need to know the mass. So for carbon, it's the sixth element and has a mass of about 12 AMU. And oxygen is the eighth ele element and has a mass of about uh, 16 AMU. I can convert AMU into kilograms. And I need to know how far apart they are, which I can look up. Wikipedia has it. The bond length is 120 picometers. So what I've got is um, 12 AMUs here, 120 picometers away. I've got 16 AMUs. And 120 picometers away. I have another 16 AMUs. I'll call this my origin. And then I'll say the moment of inertia is the sum 
of mr squareds for the particles. Got all the masses. I've got their positions. I calculate the moment of inertia. And I can plug that in here along with h bar to calculate the energy associated with the transition. And then I can use the fact that energy is h bar omega or hf and f is c over lambda. So the wavelength associated with a purely rotational transition is hc over the change in energy associated with that transition. And I can plug in my j times j plus 1 uh, h bar squared over 2i. And I'll get something very close to a centimeter, which is consistent with what I have here. Um, couple other relevant things here. Um, said a carbon dioxide laser has a laser frequency or a laser wavelength of about 10 microns. So 10 microns is about 100 wavelengths per centimeter. No, 1,000 wavelengths per centimeter. And so I can look and try to figure out for a carbon dioxide laser what type of transition occurs. And these two are about 1,000 wave numbers apart. So a transition, for example, from an asymmetric stretching mode to a symmetric stretching mode produces the right amount of energy for the photon given off in a carbon dioxide laser. So that's a vibrational transition. But the change in angular momentum is zero going between those states. There needs to be a change in angular momentum. That means a change in j. So there's necessarily also a change in the rotational energy. Okay, so say carbon dioxide spectrum. would have energy levels that are primarily given by the different vibrational quantum numbers. And there would be some, uh, they could be different quantum numbers, or they could be different types of different types of vibration, the different types of vibration of different energies. But each of those energy levels will be kind of smeared into a band by all the very closely spaced rotational degrees of freedom. And so the transition is between two vibrational states, asymmetric to symmetric, that's right, and has to be from states with different angular momentum, meaning it's not just a vibrational change, it's also a rotational change. We call that a row vibrational 
transition. Okay, so I wanted to get through that because that gives you a pretty good start on the homework for Monday if you haven't done that yet. Um, but we'll wrap up there. And then on Monday, we will go through, we'll do an exercise in class. So you might bring a little bit of paper uh, and a calculator if you want to uh, work through some stuff that we'll do uh, sort of interactively.